0: hello and welcome to the voices of freedom podcast i'm your host dennis gill And if you are new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you will find out what we are doing is both informational and entertaining at the same time. And if you are a return listener, thank you for your continued support. Either way, if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at the Voices of Freedom, if you'd like to find out how you can help us by contributing to the project, uh, you can go to our website at www.americansinwartime.com. Org. That's www.americansinwartime.org. Also, while you're there, you can peruse all of our interviews, uh, at least all the ones that are online. And about three-quarters of the interviews that we have done, which is a little over 620, 630 interviews, about three-quarters of them are available currently on our website, and soon all of our interviews will be available. Um We just have to edit them, get them looking good, and then we post them up on our website. We also post our interviews on YouTube and Vimo, uh, so you can find them there. And of course our podcast, where we are taking select interviews and we are turning them into a podcast for you to listen to on your way to work, on your way to the gym, while you're at the gym, or just doing things around the house. Uh, I should go into a long introduction about who we are and what we do. I'm not going to do that today because I want to uh, get you to this interview as soon as possible because it's a good interview. And it is with Navy corpsman and Vietnam veteran Jim Bork. Jim has an amazing story to tell, and he's got lots of stories to tell given that he did three tours in Vietnam and received seven Purple Hearts. Seven Purple Hearts. That's a lot. Um, you see a guy that maybe gets two or three, and, and, and that's it. They're sent home. Uh, but Jim, over the course of three tours, received seven Purple Hearts. One of the stories he tells uh, about receiving one of those Purple Hearts was a night when he was in a foxhole and found himself confronted by an enemy soldier. That enemy soldier stabbed Jim three or four times, Jim was able to get his knife and end the fight by killing that enemy soldier. Um, You can imagine you're in a foxhole at night. You can't see anything. You can just hear stuff going on around you. And the next thing you know, there's an enemy soldier with you inside that foxhole. And he's trying to kill you. So that's the kind of experiences that Jim has. That's the kind of experiences that he will relate during his interview so without further rambling from me, I want to give you the interview with United States Navy Corpsman and Vietnam veteran Jim Bork.
1: This is Greg Pass with the Americans in Wartime Museum. Today's date is August the sixth, twenty fifteen, and I'm conducting an interview with Jim Burke in Noakesville, Virginia at the tank farm. Sir, would you please give us your full name, your date of birth, and where you were born?
2: Uh, James J. Burke II. I uh, was born in Sheridan, Wyoming, 24th February, 1947.
1: And what war did you participate in?
2: Uh, Vietnam.
1: Do you have any other military veterans in your family?
2: Uh, as a matter of fact, my mom, my dad, my uncles, my grandparents, my wife, uh, my aunt. They're pretty much a military family.
1: And... um, why did you enter into the military service?
2: <laughs> I was born in Wyoming. I wanted to see the sea. So as a matter of fact, uh, my dad had me, was trying to prep me to go to the West Point, and we had a big argument. And I said, no. I said, uh, I want to go in the Navy. So be hence me, I went to the Navy.
1: And um, you were enlisted?
2: Right, right.
1: And where did you enter into training, and what was
2: your MOS? Well, I entered training in uh, San Diego, California, in 1965, August, no, January, July, July. And uh, I went in as a high school hospital recruit, so I became a Navy hospital corpsman. And Navy hospital corpsman has NECs instead of MOSs. So by the time I got through with my career... I think I had something like five NECs, which was different different stages for my career. Uh, operating room technician, uh, I was a field Marine Force corpsman, I was a Navy independent duty hospital corpsman, so whatever specialty you picked up, you received an NEC for it.
1: Now, when you, you're, So you're a young man at this point. Um, Pretty much so. (laughs) Were were you planning on making a career out of this, or were you just hoping to spend four? out?
2: Absolutely not. I was planning on getting out after four years, uh, going to nursing school. And uh, what kept me in the Navy, to be honest with you, was after my first four years, I'd never been to sea. So before I got out, I went and seen the the, uh, career counselor, I was stationed in St. Albans in New York, and I told him, I said, I'll make you a deal. I said, I'll extend in the Navy for two years if you can get me a ship so I can see what the Navy's really like. So he, he was just happy as a, a cat with a rat, and he got me signed up and I went to sea. That did it. I, I was hooked. <laughs> Forever. <laughs>
1: so what point did you find out that you were going to be serving in Vietnam?
2: Well, I, that came right off the bat as far as uh, my first tour after I went through Corps school. I was stationed in San Diego, and that was 1966. In 1966, things are getting pretty hot and heavy, and the Marines are getting really involved. Well, when the Marines get involved, a lot of Navy Corpsmen are involved, and Navy Corpsmen are pretty expendable in a sense that uh, you only have two per company. And so right around March, April, a call for help came out and said that they needed more corpsmen, and they they just needed them. So a whole bunch of us were rounded up. And in those days, it was like they didn't really care. You were a corpsman, uh, you went to school and left and went over. So that was my first experience was going to Vietnam in 1966, fresh off the boat.
1: Okay, so tell us um, about your, on your first tour, 1966. Right. Um, what are your duties and where are you at specifically at? Just I was I
2: was in Chulai with uh, the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines with the India Company and I was a field farm with a company, a line company and we were doing patrols uh, it was relatively what we called India country in those days. Uh, a lot of bad guys around so we were doing a lot of combat patrols and subsequently in one of those patrols I became uh, one of the numerical figures, casualties and I was sent to the Philippines rather than back to the states uh, medevacs in those days were based upon getting you out to someplace close as quick as they could so rather than going to the Philippines or the states uh Philippines in that day was the Air Force Hospital at Clark Air Base, but the Navy Hospital was at Subic, so for some reason, I got sent there, and that, I recovered there, and then subsequently I was given orders to station there.
1: Back up just a little bit, so um, explain to somebody who might be watching this video what a patrol is like. Who, who How many guys on average are on this patrol? Um, what exactly is it you guys are looking for in your specific duties to back up the Marines? us? Your,
2: your, your, your patrol normally is like uh, you're out checking villages, you're checking any hot spots, uh, maybe hiding holes that the bad guys are in. And if, it's normally a platoon, uh, consistent maybe up to 18 to 20 guys. And my duty as a corpsman was to be there to support them for first aid purposes. And so, if something happened, I was there to take care of the wounded, regardless of what happened. I was, I was there.
1: And um, and you indicated that you were yourself were wounded during one of these patrols. Right, Can you right. Tell us about that day.
2: We we've got ambushed. There was a lot of that going on, and it was just one of those things you 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 don't walk into it on purpose. It's just you walked into it and you got hit, and. When it happens, it's kind of hit you, it's fast, it's over with, and it's done. And sometimes it's an extended firefight. But this time it was just a, a quick hit, and they left, and there was before it was hit. And I was, well, it was two, two guys that were killed, and the other guy, I, you know, I took care of him. But I was hitting both legs, but luckily the rounds were, somehow they were spent. So I had uh, bullets in both my knees. And uh, they hadn't gone too far, so I didn't get crippled up by that means. But I was enough to where I got sent back.
1: And you said you were um, you had a helicopter? You were taken out by helicopter, or? Oh yeah,
2: medevac by helicopter back to the rear, and then uh, from there medevac back to the Philippines.
1: And how old were you at the time?
2: Let me see. I was a whole, uh, I think, 20 at the time.
1: So, what's going on through a twenty-year-old guy's mind when you're in the middle of Vietnam and you got
2: shot? Y- and y- <laughs> well, you're scared to death, really, when it happens. Prior to that, you're you know you're you're leery of everything. You know, you're, every sound is different, and you're hoping you you haven't been there long enough, really, to be really filled in and you're hoping all these guys you're with are filled in but you look around and most of them are just like you are you know you got the old sergeant you got uh, some of the older guys around that are the key, the keepers but the rest of you are just scared witless half the time and so when you get when the shooting starts you just don't whether to you've got no place to run so you might as well stick around for the for the show that's all I am say
1: um, so you're, you're flown out and, and you're treated, and then, then, then
2: what, what happens? Well, they, well, you, like I said, I was at station. I was given orders to remain in the Philippines uh, for a, a tour, which at that time was a year, really. So didn't really know what was going to happen after the year, but I was I was pretty happy just being stationed in the Philippines, you know. I was out of the war, so everything was fine.
1: Now, that, the, 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 so that would have been um, when you are in the Philippines, 66 and 67? Right. right. So, is, is that considered your second tour?
2: No, that would have been, well, well.
1: That would be an extension of the first
2: tour. It was kind of an extension. I was just, the first tour was actually over with, right. and now I was on my next set of orders, is what it was.
1: And at what point do you return back to Vietnam?
2: Well, it was about July. 67, and some of our more enterprising corpsmen, me being one of them, we had dated a bunch of Navy nurses, and we had uh, got caught by the chief nurse, which didn't work out too good in those days. It was a, a very bad no-no to, for for the two to, to mix. So there was about 12 of us found ourselves with uh, instant sets of orders back to Vietnam which uh, we were not too happy with, and we expressed our displeasure with it. And luckily, they were initially going to send us just directly from the Philippines back to Vietnam. So we raised enough cane with our administrative officer, and he weaseled a school for us back at Coronado Amphibious Base. It was called the SIR School, which is... Survive, escape, evade, resist, whatnot. So, ensuing we got back to the United states. We also got two weeks leave to go home. So then, after the four weeks school, two weeks leave, then we went back to Danang for our to the Navy hospital in Nang for our next assignment.
1: Tell, tell us about about that sort of
2: thing. Danang, the hospital that day, that it was a pretty big. Big, big place, but it was under fire constantly. There was a lot of rocket attacks. Uh, there were sniper attacks. The sappers, the sappers really never got through. But it was a, it was a b- big, big hospital, constantly busy. And I was stuck. I not stuck. I ended up working at what they called the receiving unit. And the receiving units took all the casualties as they came in we took the casualties we also went out on the medevacs a lot of times to take casualties to the hospital ships or go pick casualties up (coughs) excuse me so it was quite an experience Uh, I seen enough bodies at that time to fill two or three small cemeteries Just, just there and there, I, call, I don't call them highlights, but uh, the 1968 Tet Offensive occurred while I was there, which is definitely no fun. And it's been broadcasting enough on many shows and movies. and Anything anybody sees about it, uh, take me for real, it's, it happened. It was a very nasty time. The Vietnamese really planned that one good. They hit every American base throughout Vietnam at the same exact hour on the same exact day, and it was chaos—totally chaos. So we put up, we fought that fight for almost a month, over a month. Like it was a run of battle. Uh, we also went through the the siege of Quezon, which is what I I considered the Marine Corps Alamo up north on a the borders DMZ and uh, we just had all kinds of uh, operations going on constantly uh, the Battle of way that's another one Way used to be the Emerald City for Vietnam and by the time the the fight was over with it would look like a, a local garbage dump and I remember flying in there several times getting casualties and the place was just a smoking wreck look like the city dump.
1: What kind of helicopter are you on uh, when you're extracting the wounded?
2: In those days, uh, of course, this, the early 60s was uh, Marine Corps H-34 and uh, the C-knights, uh, double rotors. And that, that was the primary helicopters the Marines were using for medevac. Uh, the Army had the uh, Huey gunships, and we had what they called the uh, 22nd Black Cats which were a support group with the Marines so we had a, a variety of helicopters uh, the Air Force used to bring their casualties in on what they call the Husky it's kind of a funny looking little helicopter it's got the double rotors but they cross kind of like apexes you don't want the only way you get to the helicopter is through the rear you just can't come in by the sides the blades are that far off the deck so you gotta come straight in the rear to it but uh my primary one was the I'd say the 34 it was quite the quite the bird
1: um can you tell us about any of the missions um that stand out in your mind
2: well one stood out real well we went into a hot LZ up north and uh I was standing by the machine gun and there's a, a stanchion with the machine gun on it in the door. And I was standing behind him as we came in, and I, we could see where the people were at. So I was planning on where I was gonna jump out. About the time we were talking talking about it, a round hit that stanchion, and it was probably a spent either a twenty millimeter round or a fifty caliber round, either one. But it hit that stanchion and blew it up and it hit both he and I right in the face. But we had our shields down on our helmets, but it's, we still broke our helmets up, and I talked Mike, and he did too, and it split my head open a couple places. And uh, I remember that real well. That was uh, not a fun time.
1: So at that point, what happened? Were you, were you able to get the guys who were trying to as get f- to As the a matter
2: way? of fact, we... Uh, continued on both he and I he uh, it didn't break his gun so he just took his helmet off and he started firing and I took mine off and pulled the mic out of my mouth and got out we pulled the casualties in and we took off got back so yeah we we finished what we started but uh, we were out of commission for two or four days ourselves after that We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The
0: Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org.
1: Now during Tet, are you stationary, or are you going out on these missions as well? Or? Well,
2: the, during during Tet, it was uh, during Tet. Way occurred at the same time, and yeah, we were. Everything was like I say. Everything was hit around us, and and the Navy hospital was hit. As a matter of fact, the MVA in the Viet Cong had come around behind the naval hospital and we were trying to come over the fence into the compound and we had a Marine Corps a security guard on one side in the compound with us and they were actually fighting them off the fences in the back And the Marines <laughs> the Marines that were in the hospital up in the huts at the very top of the hill had armed themselves with you name it every, everything Everything from a broken pop bottle to uh, scalpels to uh, chairs uh, to guns that they had stolen, but uh, and we had three or four of them get on the compound. You know, everybody was you know sweating it out for that too. But we had the CBs on the other side, so they kind of filled in. So luckily the hospital wasn't hit that bad, but bad enough to. Let's say disrupt everything, but uh, it was a uh, it was hairy. It was a very hairy time.
1: Um, what were your living conditions like on that second tour? What, what, what are you in? Are you in barracks? Are you in? Are you we, we, mediums. How, how are you?
2: We were, we started out in uh, Quonset huts, and there's a uh, we kind of imp- improvised our Quonsets to where we could we got plywood we kind of built compartments where we had two guys to a compartment Uh, we made it as livable as we could and then later on about two months before I left they actually built barracks two story barracks which we didn't really care for them because two stories attracts the eye and once those two story barracks went up the Viet Cong Started shooting rockets at the hospital, and the markers were those barracks. So we we spent more times in the bunkers around the barracks than in the barracks themselves. So for the comforts of home, we just soon stayed in Huts. Now I um,
1: hate to do this, but I'm going to go back to that first tour because I want I, I failed to ask you about your living conditions on the first tour so I, I assume you're at you have a base camp and then you go out on patrol so there's two different types of living conditions oh. so like in
2: the base camp where you live in tents tents or- we're living in tents and uh about maybe five ten guys do a tent this size just t- depends on the size of the tent you know you had a cot you know a mosquito net if you're lucky but once you're on patrol you were just you your poncho liner and that was it your your poncho that that was it
1: and how long was the longest patrol that you were on
2: it was about a week okay. about a week you're uh you're ready for a shower when you get back in fact uh we used to go, you don't like to really walk into the uh rice paddies which we did all the time because they it's kind of dirty after a while there's a lot of uh night soil human waste that they use for the fertilizer. So we'd try to find a stream to get into after we had to wade through one of those. And he prayed for rain. We used to like the monsoons, because when the monsoons came, all you did was go out and get naked, take a bar of soap with you, and lather up and after you're done you get back in the tent and dry off. But then you had to worry about the mold. Because once once all that humidity was there and the dampness uh, your mold started growing so you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't
1: <laughs> All right, so back to, back to the second tour um, how does the second tour end for you?
2: the second tour wasn't bad I mean uh, it ended on a, a kind of a good note uh, we got orders and I, was got, I got orders to go to uh, the Navy Hospital St. Albans, New York City uh, I was hit one more time before I left we had ne- another instant in the helicopter we took a round in the side and it blew shrapnel into my back so that, <laughs> it was kind of funny story that I had one piece they couldn't take out because it was actually wrapped around my spine so years later many years later my wife and on a trip. We drove from D.C. back to my home in Wyoming, and by the time we got home in Wyoming, I could hardly sit in the seat because my back was hurting so bad. And we got home. My mom was there. My mom was a, a nurse, and uh, I just uh, my out my my right side was going numb, and so she, being a nurse and whatnot she and my wife looked at my back and where that shrapnel was at it got real red it was really red so my mom started putting high compresses on it and about two days later there was this little white bump on my back so (laughs) this is funny really I remember my wife sat on my back on my rear end my mom was sitting on my almost on my arms and she had a needle and she went and got me a shot of Jack Daniels and I remember that that was my anesthetic and she t- said drink this so I drank it and I said what the, What are you doing she just and she took that needle and she stuck it in my back and cut me and that piece of shrapnel just popped right out of my back and she reached out and picked it up and it was as big around as her little finger as soon as she took that out, everything just, everything went back to normal. So that was, and that was in about 1980, I think about 1981, 82. So that was from 1968 to 80-something. It Took that long for it to work out.
1: Did
2: you keep the shroud? No, believe it or not, it was encased in, in crap. And she had tore apart. It was all decomposed. It was all decomposed. No, I didn't want, want it that. anyway.
1: <laughs> so you got, um, now you have a, a third tour. So right. Okay. tell us about um, your assignment, where you were? And
2: well, I was on board ship in 1969. And when you're on the East Coast, and you're called an East Coast sailor, you're more or less destined to stay on the East Coast in those days, the rest of your Navy career. And I didn't really want to stay on the East Coast the rest of my Navy career, and I was on cruise, so coming on cru- off cruise from the Mediterranean, I went and talked to my ex-o, and I told him, I, you know, I said uh, I got to figure a way to get the heck out of here. And he said there's about the only one way I can think of. He said you almost have to volunteer to go back to Vietnam. So I said, Well I'll think about that. So I went down and talked to my chief and he said, Yeah, you know, he said, you know what the heck? He said, uh, go back as a Navy advisor. He said, it be going back with the Marines. Getting stuck with some some other, you know, horse outfit that's gonna get you shot. So I said, sure, you bet, that's good. So I volunteered to become a Navy advisor and I got orders. So I got the orders and I was just happy as a little camper until I found that. Well, I didn't find out really at first. I was to be attached to what they called the Navy MILFAP team, which is a military provincial health aid program to assist the Vietnamese in their hospitals. And ended up going through, a, and it, at that time it was working for the State Department so I ended up going to school in Bethesda, Maryland for language school and out to Quantico for weapons training and some other courses and then I had to go through some other classified things and then I went out to Coronado Amphib Base and underwent some classified training out there and then ended up going over to Vietnam and went to MACV headquarters in Saigon. And there there I got (laughs) a set of orders to go to this little town on a very southern tip of Vietnam. From there, I got further orders to go to this little island off the southern tip of Vietnam, which is called Phu Quoc Island. Now, the funny thing about that, in those days, it was a 80% Cong controlled and it had a big contingent of North Vietnamese prisoners on the southern tip around 40,000 of them the job I got stationed with with the the Army 5th Special Forces (coughs) as a medic and I tried to tell them I said I'm not a medic I said I'm a Navy Corpsman they said you were the Army you're a medic so rather than argue the deal. But it was the best tour I I had because besides just being a Navy corpsman and doing corpsman things, these guys, when you're with an A-team, you don't just do one job. I mean, you're not just sitting in the corner. uh, You're busy. If you're not doing busy with this, you're getting busy with that. So... I became pretty proficient with weapons, radio, demolitions. I helped with the aircraft mechanic. I knew how to run a diesel generator. I I, I was pretty much a, a, hand, a diver. I was jump qualified. I mean, I just had a ball. I mean, I, I was like a kid in a candy store. We were always going out doing something. I mean, we were going places that are still classified, and just had a. Like I say, I had a good time. Of course, I uh, at the expense of getting wounded three more times, but each time I was wounded, it wasn't bad enough to come back to the states. I spent two or three weeks in army hospitals, but then I go back to my team. You know, that's how these guys worked. You know, if you weren't hurt so bad, you didn't go back. Then you weren't going back, you were gonna come back, so I stayed there. But I had you know I had a set of orders. A lot of people find this hard to believe, but our team had orders. We were allowed to fly on any aircraft at any time, any place in Vietnam. We could be on the streets twenty four hours a day. The past the past more or less gave us open carte blanche to do anything in Vietnam I still got the papers in my uh, scrapbook at home so uh, and at the same time we were all had uh, (laughs) wanted posters I still got that at home you know each one of us had a wanted poster on us I can't even remember what I was wanting I was kind of ticked off my bounty wasn't that much but they actually had bounties on us.
1: Tell us about one of the missions you were on where you were you were
2: wounded. It was, again, again flying in a helicopter. Helicopters were my, my bad luck story. But we flew in. The helicopter I was in had been shot up pretty bad before, just before the one I was going on. And there were still people out in the field. So the pilot asked me, we kind of was talking about he said, would you be willing to try, to, would you fly with me? He said, I can't, well, I'm taking co-pilot. He said, "Not taking gunners. Nobody said, I'd, but I need to get the people out. So I, you know, sure, why not? You know, it's a, my job. Well, the, the helicopter had been shot pretty bad. The tail boom already had three or four holes in the side, and it weakened the boom where it attached to the fuselage. And there's a couple of dents in the rotor blade and there's holes in the helicopter all over. So he was kind of, he was very leery flying it, but it had to be done. So we had, we took took the bird out and as we was coming in there's all all kinds of people on the ground and as we came in we I'll never forget what looking down, well when the Vietnamese fired tracers, they were green. I'll never forget seeing those green tracers coming up through that helicopter. I had a couple of them just pass right through my flag jacket and ricochet off me the flag jacket. And I had one come up and scrape my head, which, you know, you're so, you're so hyped up with adrenaline, you really don't feel something. If you feel it, you don't feel it. I don't know if that sounds right. Now, later on, you feel it. When you come off the, the high, you really feel it then. So that happened. I got nicked, nicked in the arm. but You just blow that off. So we got on the ground, picked the casualties up, landed that helicopter. We got out, and the tail boom fell off. We no sooner was on the ground, out of the helicopter, had the people off, And he and I were sitting there shooting the bull, and that boom just went boom. And we both walked over to our team house, broke out a fifth booze, and he and I got very, very happy.
1: (laughs) You made um, mention before we came back in the uh, studio portion of the recording studio, you mentioned that you had an incident at a foxhole as well.
2: Well, at night, where the team was at, we had we had a team house attached to the team house we had a, bu- a bunker we had a 50 caliber on the bunker with a night scope there was another bunker on what we called the berm the berm is kind of like a build up hill around the compound well our team house is right close to the berm well the Viet Cong a lot of times would make probes they would come in well, we had sensors out, and our sensor box boxes show us if, if somebody's out there. You'd be, of course, it's always black it as dark. And at nighttime, the scope you could pick out images, but they weren't like you see in the movies now, or it's available with night vision. These were very hazy. Like a starlight. In uh, you know, starlight, was starlight, it was green. It was a hazy green. And now, if anybody would light a light around you, it would distort the whole thing. So one night our major told us he said, he wanted everybody out in our holes. Well we all had foxholes built right off the berm, right behind it, to where the berm was actually firing port for us. We just step out of the, the hole beyond the on the port. Well one night I was in in my hole and our holes are about maybe ten yards apart and once you got in your hole you never got out of it until morning well one night after we we knew people were out there you'd actually hear them and I, we just just sat there listening all of a sudden the body was in a hole with me it just like instantly you'd be we're here but you was in my lap and at first, I couldn't realize what, what the heck was going on. Then I knew what was going on. One of the bad guys was in the hole with me. Well, before I did anything at night, I always put my knife inside of the hole. You know, I think, I think of, he couldn't really move around as much as I could. I could get my knife out of the hole. But by the time I got my knife out, he always stabbed me about three or four times with his but his wasn't very big and I don't really remember what I did until the next morning when the sun came up well the sun came up and I got out of the fighting hole he was still in the fighting hole so it was a one of those things it happened so fast but uh and you don't feel yourself hurt at all. But then I started little, there's little cuts all over me. So he, but luckily he wasn't able to move that much, and I was so. You know, Scary. <laughs>
1: was there anybody else from your <coughs> wounded on that night?
2: I was the only lucky one. Everybody else, they hadn't even heard it. Because you didn't make noise. You couldn't make any noise at all. So it was all very quiet when it was being done. Till the next morning when y'all get up. Because they all asked me what the hell had happened. And I said, well, it's kind of obvious. You know, and he said, they hadn't heard nothing. So, I was very leery after that about getting that. That hole. I did, but I didn't really like it that much.
1: Um, any other incidents on that, that third tour that you wanted to discuss?
2: Oh well, I had this to, We took care of the still did take care of the Vietnamese quite a bit, and I had one where this was even published before by UPS. This pregnant Vietnamese gal came in. Well, it was a difficult birth. So I had to go down and help her out. Well, she had triplets. And these little critters are about... I mean, they weren't bigger than a minute. Well, here I had these three little babies and her. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell to do with them. Well, we had... A, we had an oven in the team house it was a propane gas so I lined this oven with a blanket and I put I had, had my an oxygen tank for my first aid stuff so I ran the line into the oven and I had the babies all wrapped up in, in sheets and had them in the oven just the pilot light on in the oven I was, was cracked. Had the ga- had the O2 in there. And then we called in the Air Force Circuit Bird with a, a baby team on board to come pick them kids up. Mama was fine. We had her on a stretcher. And I had these three babies. And the Air Force guys came in. They flew We pulled them in at night because we had a landing strip there. They land, We landed by... We had kerosene-filled shells. So that was the landing lights. And they would actually come in and land on a tarmac. Well, when they brought, brought this team off, we were all standing there, and you have to realize, we were, were, not, were not the most exact GIs in the world. I think I was wearing a pair of cut-off shorts, flip-flops, a t-shirt a ball cap I had my pistol on you know I think the other guys are dressed about the same these Air Force people come off in full combat gear they've got incubators on this thing they want to know who's in charge well the major points at me you can't, you can't tell he's a major I many of just look like the dirt bag like the rest of us and he said well he has a point at me they said, well, "Where's the babies?" And I said, "Well, come with me." I said, "I got them in my incubator." So they, they came over to the team house. Now there was a couple of nurses, female nurses. There was a doc, a pediatrician. And there was a couple of the medics. So they come over. Well, they brought their incubator with them. Well, we had we had our our jeep, and as of course that was our only transportation. So they had to walk and run with us all the way to the team house and they got over there and they wanted know the babies were I'll never forget I pointed at the at the oven and these two nurses just like the crapped they said you're kidding me they said no I said they're in there so they opened it up and the babies were in there and they were they were, they were as snug as bugs and rugs and these nurses just I mean they were pale they just knew that I killed these kids they got them out and they put them in the incubators they're just going all over them and I I just stood there you know like well we'll take them you know like I've done all I can well after they sit there screwing around they finally decided to take the babies and go so we took mama daddy all the rest of the family and put them all on the bird too so they all took off and went to Saigon I thought well I was the last of that crap until I had this UPS reporter come in. Well, a couple of weeks later, wondering what, what I'd done. I said, well, what'd they tell you? And they said, well, they gave me this cock and bull story about an oven and this and that. And I said, well, yeah. So I showed him everything. So next thing I know, it was in the paper. You know, it was about, I thought, well, here, called Bacon Babies, you know.
1: <laughs> so, um, it was three total of three tours? Yeah. So um, can, you, can you describe um, <clears throat> when you returned home, whether it the first, second, or third tour, did you ever run into any type of conflict with with uh, people back home with the anti-war sen- sentiment? Did you ever run into any of
2: that? You, you know, I'll be honest with you, Greg. When I came home each time, I guess I had to be, have been lucky. When I came home, the first time it was only because I was coming home from the Philippines. Well, I just went straight home to, to Wyoming. Now, sure, Wyoming is is not in the main mainstream of rural politics, or we we had some some, but I was never confronted with any things that I knew. Many of my friends were confronted with. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> the last tour, when I came back, I flew into uh, San Francisco, and I had a layover one night. And I went, to, I don't know tell the story, but I went to a bar. And I called my parents up, told them I was in San Francisco, and be catching the plane home the next day. And so you know that was unknown. So I went to this bar. Well, I got myself kind of tanked. Well, I got pretty well tanked where the bartender said, "You ain't going no place," and he called the cops. So I just knew I was had. Well, luckily I had my—I was wearing my dress blues. Well, I had my hotel key in my front pocket of my jumper. So the cops came at the bar, and I I didn't want to try to talk to them because I could hardly talk. I mean, I was I was lucky to be sitting on the seat without falling off. And so these two guys are pretty nice, and they started patting me down. So I knew next thing I knew was going to jailhouse. So I could see you coming. So the guy found my key, and he said. We're taking him with us, so I I knew that was it. Put me in the, by God, cop car, patrol car, and they took me back to the hotel. And these two cops took me up and put me in my room and told the manager, you don't let this guy leave this hotel until the morning, then you put him in a cab to the airport. And that's the only run-in I ever had that was close to to any bad run-in with anybody over my return back from Vietnam. Like I say, I, I did know a lot of people who got stuck, like say, L.A., Los Angeles, uh, some of the bigger cities who did have some real bad instances with, uh, you know, what was going on at the time. How
1: do you think that your uh, wartime experience affected your life?
2: I changed me quite a bit. My p- perspectives uh, how, how I looked at life, like I say, I those those three tours, I seen enough bodies, and maybe created a few myself to fill a few cemeteries. And I mean, I, I I never I never I can't I don't know why. I had a lot of guys that this PTSD that you hear about I'm not saying it doesn't exist because I know it's existing for the current GIs but they're in a different situation than I was uh, we, we had a certain length of time and we knew that length of time and yeah, we were confronted with a lot of bad things and these guys aren't com- being confronted with anything worse than I was But when my tour was over with, I knew that was done. These guys coming back now are only home for a while, then they're going back. And they're doing this constantly. So you got... Where I was going, I I knew my time. I was coming home. I was going to have another tour. And I wasn't going to go back unless I volunteered. Well, now these guys are in a different situation. So, yeah, but... I've never had a problem with that. I don't have any... I don't have nightmares, to be honest with you. I don't have any real regrets. Uh, a lot of the people I seen die, uh seen it horrible ways, terrible ways. But that was that was my job. You know, it wasn't like I was uh one of the other GIs that had to see it and but I had to cope with it every day. That was my my way, my way of life if I couldn't cope with my job then I wasn't doing my job so
1: if a young kid came up to you today and said hey I want to be a Navy corpsman what, what advice would you
2: give him? I said go for it I, I would promote the military great now because uh, there's such educational opportunities uh, for a young person to go in service and uh, nowadays you just don't go in service like my day my day, I know guys that uh, were given options. You go to jail, you go in the military. Nowadays, you're you're hard hard pressed to get in the military. They don't just take anybody anymore. You have to have a uh, good marks, good good everything before you can get in. So it's not to, it's not just a uh, for the, the bad guys. It's uh, bad guys won't get in. This is the good guys now. So, yeah, I promote it 100%. So
1: this, this video here, you're going to get a copy of it in a, in a couple months, but um, well, a is also going to go to the Library of Congress and the Veterans History Project. So theoretically, a couple hundred years from now, one of your relatives <laughs> might stumble upon the video. What would you want them to know about your military service?
2: I think I did it honorably. I enjoyed what I did. I would recommend the military to anybody who has the thought of wanting to go in the military I'll also agree that the military is not for everybody I've known people put their four years in got out was glad to get out so be it, that's fine Uh, some people stay in the military there's a difference they have what they call the lifers and they have the career men I've always considered lifer to be the guy to put his 20 years in because you want to just get it done get a, get a retirement check get out and do whatever I to consider a career man a man like myself I put my 30 years in I enjoyed it I made a career of it and I still consider myself part of it so yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much promotional for the military.
1: Is there anything else you want to document about your wartime experience?
2: No, I, I think I think it speaks for itself. To, uh, three tours. Uh, first one, non-voluntary. second one, very involuntary. And then the third one, very voluntary. So I, t- <laughs> I covered the gambit on it. And I, uh, I got a lot out of it. I really did. I think I was a better per- person for it. I know... I, if I hadn't done it I'd have missed I'd have missed it I'd have missed the whole thing what it was all about I think somebody who hasn't doesn't experience war hasn't been in the military if you're in the military and you don't experience war you know it's you've missed the meaning Military's military is about war That's that's the name of the game
1: well, on behalf of the Americans in the Wartime Museum, I um, thank you for your service and thank you for coming in today to uh, tell your story. Thank, thank you me. very Happy, much. great to
0: meet you. You bet. You too. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.